giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Sam Thippen. Hey, Sam. Hello. Uh, so I feel like the way that we met is actually kind of an interesting story that yes. maybe we could start with. Yeah. Which is that you started harassing me. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and sort of stalked me until I agreed to hang out with you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that is that is not wrong. That's, yeah. That's like pretty much pretty much what it was. Sure. So we had never met. Do you, you want to more... tell it from your, your perspective? Uh, sure. I mean, I was going to my first ever uh, Ruby I, conference. I and I was that like, was your first. Yeah. I don't know anyone here. That guy did a talk. I do some open source. Maybe he'll want to program with me. And mm-hmm. then he did. And it was nice. Yeah. So you, I think you reached out to me on Twitter. Yeah. And just said, hey, like, want to hack on some stuff while I'm there? Uh-huh. At the time, I just said yes. Yeah. I, had, I, I didn't know who you were, but I was like, yeah, sure, fine. Uh-huh. I ex- probably expecting you to not follow up. Uh-huh. And then you did. Uh-huh. And I think there are actually two useful lessons in there. Uh-huh. One is that generally, if you ask people for things, a lot of times, you just they'll just say yes. Yeah. Like, especially in this community, it feels like people are pretty nice. Yeah, for sure. Um, and the other thing is that you got to follow up. Yeah. I said yes, but I was not going to go hunt you down. Yeah, but you sure. you tracked me down, and then we en- did end up pairing. Yeah, uh, and actually, it turned out that you were a, a fun, interesting person, and we uh, started a little friendship. Thank you. And also, I got to troll you really hard with uh, the RSpec internals. Yes. So yeah, what I didn't realize is that I was signing up to hack on like legacy RSpec <laughs> pieces that had like all kinds of nasty Unicode formatting things. Or... Oh yeah, that's right. We were doing the Unicode differ bug. Yeah. Yeah. It was awful in a way, <laughs> but it was fun. I mean, like I, I love. I love pairing with people that I haven't paired with before. Uh-huh. You always learn things. And yeah, for sure. You you know a lot about the RSpec internal, so I got to like get a peek at that, and it's mm-hmm. that's always fun. Like, yeah, g- getting kind of a tour around a code base that someone else knows pretty well is kind of interesting. Yeah, it. I I like trolling people by being like, "Hey, do you want to pair on some open source?" And then they're like, "Yes," and then I show them RSpec and surprise, surprise, it's, it's a the, mess. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like whenever RSpec is discussed about being a mess internally, I need to sort of caveat it with the fact that like a it's been around forever right mm-hmm. like aspect two is five or six years old now and aspect three is coming up to one and all of the people that work on it are like you know somewhat pressed for time somewhat busy mm-hmm. uh and so like the work everyone is doing is re- like really excellent and we're all just a bit pushed right mm-hmm. um, it's not that the people that work on aspect want the code to be legacy and smelly it's just how it happens right and the, and there's there's because the code base is large enough there's lots of pieces that don't get looked at anymore that for sure of have you know would be written better if they were written again now right exactly but no one's gonna just go rewrite them unless sure. it's you and me pairing at <laughs> rubyconf in which case right. like, oh my gosh well we were fixing a bug right and then the urge to refactor appeared and right there were like we pulled two or three objects out and like those are still in there today Hooray. in one form or another awesome uh yeah I think I got my name on those commit messages, maybe. You you did. Nice. Yeah. Contributor list. Yeah. That's another life hack, pro tip, uh-huh. hashtag. <laughs> Pair with someone that has commit bit on a, an open source project and just get them to put Push you on the git commits. Uh, commit yeah. message and then bam. Yeah, for you're sure. A committer. Yeah, although like obviously that went through a review. Of course. Sure the tests were passing. Right. <laughs> this isn't Bundler. We don't just YOLO push to master. Whoa. Bundler trolling. Yeah, well. Would you say that if the Bundler team were here? I so I actually did some pair programming with uh, Andre Arco at uh, a conference called Frozen Rails and Helsinki. Yes, mm-hmm. and he literally just pushed the commit straight to master, wow. and uh, only the build on one eight seven broke. 
Yeah. But it still broke. And I was like, oh dear. Yeah. And now my name is on the like red build of Bundler Master. I, I remember being shocked, speaking of 187, about how many different versions of Ruby our spec continues to support. Yeah. What's the list currently? So it's it's 187, uh, the whole 19 series, and 2 plus, obviously. Wow. That's friend. That's like nice of you. Sure. Well, at the time of Aspect Three, which was the last time we actually modified the list of supported rubies, one eight seven, whilst sort of end of life, was still used by a lot of people, and um, it didn't make sense to like just cut them off, right? And like Bundler, for example, speaking of, still like uses Aspect and still supports Ruby one eight seven, and like mm. it would have been rough and weird to like force bundler to use an old version of rspec mm-hmm. uh in order to write their tests right and like rspec 3 had a lot of new goodness in it and we didn't you know we don't want to be the reason that people have to upgrade their ruby interpreter <laughs> yeah that said from rspec 2 to rspec 3 we did drop 186 support right um and because semver we're not going to drop more rubies until rspec 4 happens whenever that may be yeah gotcha do you work on other open source stuff besides RSpec? Um, not primarily, although uh, having done RSpec a lot also sometimes causes me to need to reach out to other projects because, you know, it touches every part of the ecosystem and yeah. make changes there. There are there are a small number of gems uh, upon which RSpec depends that necessarily the maintainers form might not be as engaged as RSpec maintainers are, and so sometimes we, like, sort of push them to merge our pull requests and do releases because we expose a bug in their gem. Hmm. So what made you pick RSpec? I was... I mean, I, I it's, a, it's a really typical story. I encountered a bug. I fixed it. Uh, I noticed that some refactoring could happen internally. I did, like nine or ten refactoring pull requests on RSpec. Mm. And uh, some months later, Myron, the guy that is the lead maintainer of RSpec, was like, hey, some of the people on the core team want to move away and we're looking for people to fill the slots. Would you like to join? I was like, sure, because I'm bad at saying no. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. It's funny, you were talking about the the messy, or like parts of the RSpec code base being a little bit messy. And uh-huh. it strikes me how little it matters to people that use it. Oh, like, for sure. Like me, for example. Right, exactly. It, um, it, like people constantly are like, I know that there are Rails contributors or people that look at the, go source driving on Rails and go, oh my God, this is so terrible. And uh-huh. like, it continues to be a massive success and people continue to not care at all. Totally. And like eventually like there's there there is a you know there's technical debt there right so if, uh-huh. it, if it means that it's harder to do things and things come out slower it does affect end users in a, a certain indirect way sure but it also doesn't generally yeah i think our rate of release on new features and bug fixes is very good mm. um and i also feel like our api is basically sufficiently well curated now facing the users that like that external interface is very unlikely to change right mm-hmm. and it's all internal or small details that change like most of the like 100 percent legitimate actually a bug bug reports we get are because people are mocking or stubbing on objects that have like slightly strange interfaces to them like the method method has been changed or the send method has been changed or so on and so like it's very rare that like what the user sees as 
our spec changes a huge amount, right? And so yeah. much what we do is very internal. Yeah. That big change of getting away from like uh, the should on object, that was two to three, right? No. No? No. I mean, it's still there, right? I know it's... The sh- so the should syntax is, is still there. And in fact, it's still turned on by default. And <laughs> there are no plans uh, to ever fully remove the should syntax. Which I think is kind of hilarious. Aspect. Uh, so it's a configuration option right now. And the decision might be made to turn it off by default in mm-hmm. Aspect 4. But certainly... As far as I'm aware, there are no plans to ever not make it a part of our spec. Uh, That's good because that, switching that was when our spec sold out. <laughs> in my book, what do you mean by sold out, Ben? I just I loved the should syntax. Uh-huh. I want this is Ruby. I say throw a hundred extra methods on objects. <laughs> let's let's DSL this thing. Uh-huh. Let's go. I'm ready. Yeah. Well, like. It is not necessarily actually all that beneficial to stick a method on object. And for example, with uh, proxy and delegator objects, the should syntax breaks very easily, Mm -hmm. whereas it's very, very hard to make an object which breaks the expect syntax. Mm -hmm. Which is what everyone always told me, and I I get it. And I think it's probably the right choice overall. It's just just aesthetically, Uh I suppose, for my my soul likes it less. It's just that you don't like doing more typing. It's, it kind of comes down to that. Like, and I tend to have to put parens with my expects and whatnot. And yeah, because parens are so hard. And the and the sentence, it just doesn't read as beautifully as it used to. I So, I mean, that maybe that is fair, but that is subjective. Uh, totally, of course. I mean, and, just... and there are a number of, like, objective reasons why it is better, right? As yep. we've often discussed. Yeah, I think um, it's... Yeah, right. I like <laughs> to give you a hard time about it, but um, I think it was the right call. Yeah, and, well, the other thing... I think is one of the biggest wins with the expect syntax is that expect is the only keyword to actually start an aspect expectation now. Whereas with should, you had should receive and expect with a block to catch an error. Now Mm -hmm. expect is always what you use to Mm -hmm. set up an expectation, which is like a nice sort of brain hack for people who are writing tests, I think. And regarding the history, the expect syntax was introduced quite early in the RSpec 2 series, I want to say 2.11 or 2.10, just in the RSpec expectations module, and then in 2.13, uh, it was added for mocks as well. So the expect syntax has actually been around since before RSpec 3. Okay. It's just that when RSpec 3 came out, a sort of decision was made to like really start fronting it as the suggested syntax to use. Um, the should syntax now very quietly tells you off if you use it, uh, which is a warning that I added. Um, yeah, and I, can I, I turn off that warning? Uh, I think you can. I seem to recall it's possible. Yes, if the, way, not, okay. the way you turn it off is you explicitly enable the should syntax in your spec helper. Okay, that's reasonable. You can, and in fact, I think the warning tells you that. Uh, yeah, it's been a while, though. I just like that you, like, deprecate this thing, only it'll never go away, only we'll yell at you if you use it. Sure. You. Well, the wa- the warning is very explicit about that as well. Sure. It, it says, this will be disabled by default. If you want it, please turn it on. Right, um, which is reasonable. Yeah. So there are some interesting new RSpec features in the works, I hear. Yeah, so um, RSpec 3.3 is just around the corner, and... I'm using it on one of my projects. I run a few of my projects on RSpec from GitHub on master because Mm -hmm. 
we're pretty good about keeping our master branches green and it's pretty rare that like a serious show-stopping bug gets introduced to them so i wouldn't encourage most people to do this but like i feel pretty comfortable in my own work like running our spec off master because i can always debug it if necessary and um i did a thing this morning and one of your colleagues was like oh my god i want that feature so bad um so i figured we could talk about that so um the the one I was working with this morning is a failure we're calling rerun failures, uh-huh. which uh, will basically, when you run your aspect test suite, it will write uh, the IDs of the examples that failed out into a file so that you can uh, rerun all of the failures or an individual one and then iterate on that until it passes and so on and so on. That is super great. Um, I have wanted exactly that. Cool. Well, so that's coming in aspect 3.3. Uh, which is soon, hopefully. So r- r- where's a file get stored? Uh, you have to put a configuration block in your spec helper. Okay, that, that says, says right, yeah, this right is where, failures here. Yeah, so I'm I'm calling mine.aspect-failures in this one project. And actually, uh, the first time you try to rerun with only failures, if that configuration option isn't set, it will, like, tell you that that's what you need to do in order to get your failures. That's very friendly. Yeah, like, one thing I'm always very impressed by is, like, how much work goes into the UX of RSpec. I think Mm -hmm. it's one of the big, like, selling points versus some of the other Ruby testing frameworks. Never heard of any others. There are no other Ruby testing (laughs) frameworks. Um, Yeah. And then the other uh, bisect. So the idea is that if you have ordering dependencies between your tests and you're running in a random order... Uh, you can give it the random seed and tell it to bisect, and it will output the smallest set of tests to make an individual one fail. Oh, that's interesting. Because RSpec now has a new uh, internal notion of example ordering called IDs, which is the order that example groups and examples are defined within spec files and the order in which they're loaded. Um, which means that, like, we can do stable ordering even of, like, randomized tests. So, like, uh, running a subset of tests with a random seed will run them in the same order as if they were still placed within the entire test suite, right? Huh. Which is what enables this feature. Yep. So so how does this... I'm having trouble actually picturing the bisect. So, like, how do you figure out what the tests are that cause it to fail? So, well, let's let's simplify slightly. So if you uh, are running, like your test suite only up until the point that you encounter one failure then it necessarily follows that like state changes from the earlier tests are what cause that test to fail right and so that that is the act the same condition you need as you need in bisection search right where your like array has to be ordered in order to do that the like array here is the array is like state changes per example yep um, and then you basically, you know, you run half the examples in each before in each case, and you see uh, whether the test starts passing or failing again. Oh, so it knows to look at that test that failed last time. Yeah. So it's actually rerunning the example uh, the example groups over and over again yep. until it finds the smallest set of tests it needs that actually caused the failure. Huh. Cool. Yeah. That sounds really handy when you need it. Yeah. Like, really handy. In in all fairness, there was a mini-test bisect first. Oh, okay. Um, but it's in our, it will be built into RSpec as of RSpec 3.3. It will that's just cool. be I mean, in that, the to, runner. To me, that that's you should be copying each other. Like, yeah. good ideas should be 
happy and mercilessly. Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, and we, you know, we also know that Rails 5 is going to introduce a mini-test runner for mini-test-style tests in Rails apps. What, what do you mean? So, RSpec's runner is, like, one of the big selling points at the moment, because mini-test does not really have a runner with a lot of features at the mm-hmm. moment, right? Um, and so, my understanding is that in Rails itself, they are introducing a test runner for mini-test tests for Rails apps huh. that will have a number of the features of the RSpec runner. And that's, like, super great, right? Because these these features in particular should, don't, like, are not bound to one of the two testing frameworks, right? Like, a good runner should exist for both. Okay. So Rails is going to provide that? I think I think it's being provided by Rails itself. Sounds a little yeah. weird. Yeah, I don't know. Um, this is just what I've heard through the grapevine. Okay. So uh, getting back to open source a little bit, uh-huh. uh, you, I assume, look at a lot of issues and pull requests and things like that. For sure, yeah. Um, do you have recommendations for how people can uh, make your life easier slash get their pulls request, pull requests merged more frequently and things like that? So, like, one thing we have like on RSpec, as you might expect, is a uh, extremely high level of test coverage on (laughs) everything that we do. Like, it's not actually 100%, um, but we will not accept new pull requests without tests. Um, And if they're user-facing, we generally might ask for a Cucumber feature as well, although uh, we'll often just write that ourselves because our cucumber features end up being user-facing documentation at the moment but yeah so like we need tests just because otherwise we have to maintain the code that you merge that we merge right and so without tests we don't know what it's supposed to do whether it's part you know actually works if we refactor it at some point further on and so on and then with issues i tend to encourage people to uh, open issues much, much more liberally than they do. Um, when I'm sort of talking to people uh, at conferences and whatever, I hear them just being like, RSpec totally broke for me. And I'm like, did you file an issue? And they're like, no. And I'm like, why didn't you file an issue? And they're like, I thought it was my fault. And I'm like, no, no, it's probably us. We're probably bad. Mm. Um, even if it turns out that like it is something that you're doing, I care much more about knowing the struggles that people are having because that also allows us to, like, fix our documentation, fix our tutorials, like, publish guides or whatever. Um, And, like, the volume of issues that we get is actually not so ridiculous. Mm. Um, Like, the RSpec repos tend to have fewer than 50 open issues on them at any one time in total. Now, like, obviously... Uh, there are much bigger open source projects that only want issues that like have a solid absolute reproduction case but like we manage everything from feature requests to uh, help requests to bug reports through the github issue tracker that we have so like it's a bit different that said if you're going to report a bug via an issue please 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 include a simple reproduction case because if we have to spend some time constructing something to try and reproduce the issue it can be difficult to know whether or not we've actually captured the issue correctly right. in our test or whatever and in particular uh doing that with rails apps is really really difficult because like 
the Rails environment is so sort of, you know, interconnected and there are so many moving parts, it can be really hard for us to reproduce an issue that you're having on a Rails app. And also, like, even a point release on a Rails on Rails can, like, just disappear the issue. And so it can get quite complicated. So we often just ask people, please give us a full Rails app that we can clone to show this issue. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, speaking of pull requests, one of the things that you've told me uh, uh-huh. is that Myron, Myron, yeah. Myron, Myron. Uh, Myron Marston is amazing at pull review. Yeah, like you said this multiple times on multiple occasions. Yeah, and I'm curious, like what what to you makes someone awesome at reviewing pull requests? <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble now. Okay. <laughs> um, Why? Because he doesn't want the attention. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, sorry, Mr. Marston, but you're too good at, at code review. I don't. I'm not sure I can put it into words. I just feel like. Um, particularly in particular the way Myron does it is he'll just like go over every single line of code like literally read the whole pull request in in detail and like leave comments that both have like a deep understanding of aspects legacy and like Myron is clearly a very good engineer you can just tell by talking to him and the way that he works Um, when I'm like doing pull review myself I tend to just try and point out all the things that i find questionable or a bit strange um so like a really good example of this is when i was reviewing one of myron's pull requests and i just got absolutely owned uh, after leaving comments so there was there was the situation where he was using like fetch with a default block with a return inside it and i was like wait is the return keyword necessary here i don't think it is he's like no procs don't get their own stack frame so this is going to cause the method to exit early and it's an error i think i was like you're right and also i didn't think about that and like yeah it's um basically what i'm looking for when i review pull requests is like is there good tests can i actually understand what the change is doing uh do i think this is the correct way to implement it is has complexity gone up Yep. And then, like, this was not true even, like, a year ago, but it's true now that we have, like, automated tools to, like, help us with so much of this stuff. So, like, we have uh, Rubocop in our CI build, which will reject pull requests that don't match style. And, you know, if it's not green, we're not going to yep. merge it. And we also have, like, multiple layers of test coverage, as I've already mentioned, which, like, I have a huge degree of confidence that if our spec's own test suite is green, then we can almost certainly release and actually that degree of confidence kind of burned us on the aspect 3 release uh on aspect rails 3.0.0 like the release uh you could not install aspect rails into a new rails application mm. and a hotfix was issued i think within 48 hours that dealt with that but it was kind of like huh and that was to do with like bundler environments and gems loading and stuff and so like by the time our test suite was executing, it was too late for you to be able to find this bug, right. basically. So I want to just go back for a second uh, sure. to the pull request where you're reviewing Myron's thing and you asked about the return thing. Yeah. To me, that's that's okay. That's not getting owned, right? Like, yeah. I ask a lot of questions in pull requests that sometimes just get explained. Like, oh, no, this needs to be like this. Sure. But that, that to me, is, is healthy. Yeah, it's I like, completely agree. Yeah, because if, if, if you had that question, someone else might, you know, you're, you might have it again reading the code later on or something. Yeah, so for I, sure. I like getting that stuff out there. Yeah. So don't don't feel bad if you, <laughs> if that happens to you. Yeah, it, I mean it happens to me all the time. Yeah, right? um, and I, I'd I'd like to think that it's not just me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think anyone should feel bad for that. Uh huh. But so so Myron, his it's just he's he's thorough. He's a good engineer. He pays attention. Yeah. He 
He reads the whole thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And he's friendly. Yeah, he's very friendly. Yeah, for sure. That, I think, is a, an underappreciated yeah. uh, aspect of he, good code review. He he says that he he just, like, tries to be respectful in all of the comments that he leaves. And I think it's useful to take that with me as well, right? Like, yep. Especially, like, potentially for people who are new to open source. Like, it can be a very, very scary thing having your first pull request reviewed, especially by, like, if you know the names of the people that yep. are, like, reviewing your code, for Absolutely. sure. And I think there's incredible opportunity or incredible danger of having your comments uh, misconstrued in text only. Where oh, for something sure. that, that you think of as mild, mildly like chiding to someone is just an incredible insult or incredibly brusque. And yeah. So I try to just go totally in the other direction and, and make it like over, um, overly friendly, overly yeah. emoji and... Like 9,000 know. sparkle emojis. Yep, that kind of thing. Like yep. that, that is, I think, worth the effort. Uh-huh. It's, it's very hard to know how you're going to come across in text. Oh, I completely it's agree. so easy to, to get it wrong. I often write a comment and then I come back to it half an hour later and I'm like, is this person going to think I'm an asshole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you're not sure the answer is no, then it could be yes. Yeah. Because like, you don't know what their mood is going to be when they read it. They sure. Could, they could read it first thing in the morning after a terrible night's sleep, and it just yeah. comes off really nasty. Yeah. Like, I've had t- people tweet at me things that like are clearly, like, when I read them at 2 p.m. are clearly jokes, but if like it's like early in the morning, I'm like, what is this jerk saying to me? And it's just, yeah. it's amazing to how, how quickly your perception changes like that. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so that's, that's one of my code review tips is just assume that you're going to be interpreted in a terrible, terrible light. And so yeah. take aggressive steps to stay away from that i i completely agree that's cool now i just want to take one second uh to let you know about something i like which is digital ocean this is something that we use a little bit on upcase actually so our git server on upcase is hosted on digital ocean uh it's been really easy to set up it's been rock solid ever since we put it on there we don't have to think about it at all which honestly to me is the ideal thing for hosting but digital ocean provides simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers for as little as five dollars a month it's actually used by over 400,000 people now, which is pretty good. It's scalable. You can resize the droplets as you need, as you grow. whole bunch of operating systems available. We got Ubuntu. We got CentOS. We got Debian, Fedora, CoreOS, and FreeBSD. I use all of those, of course, every day. I know you do too. Uh, there's one-click installs for things like Rails, of course, and WordPress, and Node, and GitLab, and Drupal, and all those things. Uh, so if you're a Python person, if you're a LAMP person, whatever you are into, they got. Um, big beefy servers if you need them, tons of RAM, SSD hard drives, 20 CPUs if that's your thing, if you're doing all kinds of amazing crunching of numbers and data and whatnot, plus 99.99% uptime and gigabit speeds. So pretty great. If you are interested in trying it out, uh, go ahead and head over to digitalocean.com. You can learn more. And when you sign up, please use the code GIANTROBOTS with a capital G and a capital R at checkout. That'll give you a $10 credit, and they will know that we sent you, which is awesome for everybody. So thank you to DigitalOcean for supporting the show. So you've been writing Rails apps for a long time. That is true. I'm curious. Like, What are your Rails apps, the good parts? Like, What parts of Rails do you like and not, or do, do would you rather not use? Or You know... <sighs> My mind changes about this a lot, which I think is actually good. probably quite healthy. Yep. Um, actually, I think the best example I can give of where I've had like a complete swing is when Turbo Links came out. I was like, yes, this is the best thing ever. Uh-huh. And now I'm Mr. Single Page Web Apps Don't Work. Uh-huh. Um, and like... For me, I, I like followed along with the reasoning in the keynote, and I was like, sure, yes, yep, aha, uh-huh, this makes sense. And then I just saw it 
break repeatedly so much. Like, I'm I'm not super clear. Like, what 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 is a breaking? Why does it break things? So like. I mean, I literally the other week, like less less than two weeks ago, I had a new Rails app which was just scaffolds, and I was like just clicking around, setting out, you know, making sure everything's working, and the back button broke on me, hmm. just like straight up broke. And like the problem there is that like the actual underlying JavaScript implementation and APIs like have race conditions and stuff in them that are not well handled, huh. and like if you browser more quickly than network responses come back or whatever, then uh, you have potential race issues there and URLs stop working. And stuff. I mean, I encountered this on GitHub literally in the first day of one of one of my client projects. I was like, guys, is your GitHub broken? And it was actually just like the web browser couldn't deal with the JavaScript. Anyway, um, coming back to Rails though, like yep. one thing I'm really impressed by is how, how like much of just like stuff you would want in a web app regardless of your application architecture rails does for you things like uh the asset pipeline and like form generation and like i'm uh, i'm uh, ca- like the nested russian doll caching and it just has a bunch of these small individual tools inside it that aren't part of its core mvc remit but make web application development much much easier and so even if you want to like uh, defy the Rails architecture in some ways, you know, do something a bit like hexagonal Rails or whatever. It still has all of this stuff inside it that can really help you. Sort of on the outer layers, right? Like uh, Active Record manages database connection pooling for you by mm-hmm. default, and uh, you know, it's really easy to do things like scale up and scale down. And um, it feels to me just like Rails is an extremely mature tool for doing web application development framework regardless of its actual core architecture internals and then like i go back and forth about things like whether using an rm is actually a good idea or not so james coglin a good friend of mine likes to say the database is a service um Uh not that you should treat it as a collection of rows and models that you can arbitrarily query right the idea is that you have business questions you're more interested in asking it than necessarily talking to the ideas of individual rows and how things are connected huh. um i don't know I so hope, i hope that rambling answer was well, all useful well yeah um <laughs> uh, rails the good parts uh-huh. turbo links out yeah uh orm maybe in uh-huh uh what else callbacks no callbacks out callbacks out action cable action cable no, in or out no action cable action cable out yeah Delayed job. Job processing in general. Interesting. Well, so, like, a lot of the projects I work on have components in uh, Ruby and Python and maybe other languages as well. Um, and so I I look to queuing tools that work across uh, languages. What's, um, what's your favorite? Um, so I'm actually... Even though Sidekick does not have a Python client implementation, I am increasingly convinced that sidekick is descended from heaven to save us all Mm. um it seems to be extremely robust and performant and like quite good and one of the nice good docs too yeah good experiences with sidekick yeah and one of the nice things is that it's not coupled to your rails stack so you can put it elsewhere if you need to Mm -hmm. right one thing about delayed jobs it comes in rails is that like that means you're using rails um 
Although, I was recently talking to um, Steve Klavnik about this, and he was just, like, convinced that queuing via Redis is going to die eventually when people realize that Redis is actually not all that good at being, like, strongly persistent against, like, machine failure Mm -hmm. and things like that. And he was like, use a real database or a real messaging queue solution. Uh Uh-huh. Eh, people are actually very tolerant of stuff not actually kind of working most of the time, I think. Yes, I know. Um, it, it, do, do you follow Kyle Kingsbury's uh, blog? No. He does a lot of like um, aggressive testing of databases' consistency claims uh-huh. and finds out that most of the time they don't hold up. Uh-huh. And people are just like, yeah, you know. <laughs> it's like for mo- It turns out most of the time you can, just, you can lose a little bit here and there and sure. the world keeps spinning. Nobody will notice. People, yeah, sometimes they notice, but it's just overall people don't seem to care that much. Yeah, well, you know, I think... Maybe that's a terrible attitude to take for the world. Yeah, but... like there is this like attitude of brokenness it, that we have, right? Where like a little bit is acceptable, but then I always find that that little bit acceptable grows hmm. more quickly than you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when I have to run, for example, tech support for my family at home, I'm always like, how did computers get this way? Yeah. Like, why did I just lose an hour and a half to, like, reinstalling some printer drivers on my sister's laptop? Yeah. Um, because you're the computer guy, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. get that reputation. Yeah, it's a bit late for that. <laughs> I've uh, I've slowly gotten rid of that mantle a little bit in my own family. I just, I, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I just do programming now. I don't really know. Yeah. The problem is I uh, I worked at a laptop clinic when I was at university, and so my family is Never unfortunately precisely aware of how much tech support I have done in my life. Mm-hmm. The answer is a lot. Yep. So Rails, the good parts, plain old Ruby objects in. Oh, of course. Big active record models out. Yeah. What else? <laughs> is that not all of it? I don't know. I guess that's, is, that, is that the gist? Yeah. I mean, one thing I say to... Uh, like newer more beginner developers i work with is um i always try to strive to write things that look more like ruby and that does not necessarily mean more like rails Mm -hmm. right like those things are different concepts and so one example of this that i use a lot is uh, i never ever use the new hash syntax because that way of describing a symbol does not show up anywhere else in the Ruby programming language. And I'm not sure what you mean. So, like, when you write, like, symbol name colon, uh-huh. as opposed to colon symbol name, yeah. like, that is unique to that hash syntax, right? But you can declare symbols in all sorts of other places within the Ruby programming language, right? And so I find that that is an inconsistent way of declaring that this thing is a symbol when compared with the rest of the Ruby code that you write. It also means that, for example, you can't mix the types of things that you have in your hashes and also, like, quote and then something and then a closing quote and then a colon making a symbol is, like, an act of punching yourself in the face that I would rather not participate in. And so, like, I just don't find that the new hash syntax gives you anything uh, apart from typing, I think it's, like, two fewer characters. And... Like, typing less is not always a good reason to do something. Hmm. It's also in the parameter list now. Right, but those keyword args is a direct result of the new hash syntax. But I don't think that's, like, compelling enough reason to do it. This is the second time I've heard you mention consistency Uh in APIs as Uh being a a worthy goal. Uh 
Yeah, I'm getting a theme here. Yeah, and it's the same with things like how you treat objects and lists and so on. It's like, I try and really strive to, like, do things that I feel are consistent within, like, what Ruby looks like. And, mm. I mean, certainly some of that is my view of what Ruby looks like, but... I remember you telling me about an app you worked on where you a lot of behavior was put in these sort of, like, method objects that just have a call method yes. on them. Yeah. Are you still into that? I go back and forth. One thing it gives you is all sorts of fun, pluggable behavior. And the other thing you avoid is like having uh, the class name repeat itself with a single public method that is like the opposite, right? Like lawnmower.mowlawn. Yeah. One thing that's really nice is it means that you you sort of naturally aim at small objects, right? If you're going to expose a single public call method, then... Uh, your object is necessarily not going to be very big. Yeah, you we, hope so. You hope. And then, and then, like, inevitably, you, like, have a sudden deadline, and you're like, I'm just going to screw some extra behavior on the side here with, like... Well, yeah. Well, if you have one public method, that can call, like, 20 private methods. No problem. Yeah, sure. I know how to program. Right. <laughs> and then you have, like, private methods calling more private methods and so oh, on. Oh, always. And so on, and I don't, like, do you think that's a smell? So... When I was a more junior developer, one thing I found myself saying was, I wish I could have, like, a second layer of private methods that can <laughs> only be called from private methods. Okay. Because I didn't have, a, a, a like, a lever to, like, solve that problem in my head, right? And then I, like, realized at some point that actually you just cut more objects out. Right. And so, I like, I tend to find that if you have a lot of private methods all like calling nested layers of private methods that never really see the public method that's a good place to cut out an object yeah yeah i would call that an iceberg class sometimes yeah where you have a big submerged private section that's doing a ton of work for sure yep and usually for me the smell is isn't so much the hey there's a bunch of private methods it's man this is kind of tested through this one method up here that's like five jumps away it sure would be nice to write a test that just tests this private method but i'm not going to do that sure so what if i extracted this and tested it totally and actually it's interesting you mentioned that because i was helping a friend of mine at railsconf with some of her tests and i was looking around and i was like wait you're sending the public method with the symbol of a method you want to test to this private method then you're testing it and then in afterhook you're sending the private method, like the, <laughs> the literal method that makes the method private. And I was like, you see, what you have here is an object screaming at you to be let out. Yeah. And she was like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess I do. Because like that once that code is there, it's like, how do I test it? Um, yep. And obviously lots of people are just like, I'll just call the private method. Actually, the first thing she said to me is like, would you just send the private method to the object? I'm like, no. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things that just takes takes wisdom. You have to have heard it from somebody or read something or sure. done it yourself to realize, like, what I'm doing here is actually indicative that there's something else that should happen. Right. And those, I feel like, are the most important things to get in your head over yeah. time is, like, that spider sense so that that tingling that happens you're like wait a minute i'm doing this i'm doing some serious gymnastics here there must be an easier way yeah this is a lot of what i end up doing with my clients actually like i'm usually not brought in to help them solve their testing problems like that is highly orthogonal to the thing that i meant to do Mm. and then i get i'm just like guys we need to solve this before we do anything else because this is punching ourselves in the face yeah, actually, so the one one I see a lot that I'm always very surprised by is um, stubbing the object under the test, uh-huh. which for me, I think that might be my number one testing smell 
if I see that, there is almost certainly something wrong. So, like, we have an object, and I want to test, you know, method foo, and I stub out method bar on yeah. that same object to yeah. make sure that foo does the, you know, gets the result I want. Yeah. And that's a smell. Yeah. Why should I not do that? So, the basic reason is that at that point, you're not actually testing your object. You're testing some hybrid object that includes both your test library's code and your code. And whilst most likely the test library code is vastly simpler to reason about because stubs at the end of the day, whilst the internal implementation is extremely complicated, the actual what they do is very simple, um, but you're suddenly just not actually testing your code anymore, right? right. And So you've cut out part of the object yeah. and replaced it with something else, and yeah. so you're not really testing with the object And, works. like, usually, a, like, a fun thing to do at that point is to literally comment out that method and run all of the tests and see if they still pass. And, like, about half of the time, they totally still do. Wait, comment out the, stub, the method that's getting stubbed? Yeah, like, in, and then run the whole test suite. Okay. And because you are stubbing it, uh, it turns out you can totally, you know, your test suite might still pass. I see. Um, yep. like, like, I recently literally replaced this method, which was stubbed, which was doing a bunch of active record calls, with return empty array, and the whole test suite was green. Because every, everything that used that object was stubbing it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so when you have that smell, what, what does that tend to indicate to you? To me, usually people do it because they don't want to stub the, like, actual... Like, usually that method has a dependency in it, right? Like, an active record scope or, like, a mailer or something. And they don't want to actually do that because uh, hitting the database is expensive or sending email is expensive or, like, they don't quite get that you're totally allowed to also stub... Uh, things that aren't uh, objects, like constants, which are objects, but you know what I mean. Yep. And so, like, doing that is a fine, like, first step, because that sort of takes the smell down from, oh my god, you're not actually testing anything, to you're at least testing your whole object. But, like, usually having to stub some third-party API is indicative of, like, a different testing smell, which is that, like, it's hard for you to cleanly express what your dependencies are to yep. an object. You want to test object foo, which calls bar. And yeah. so, you know, the smelly thing to do is just stub bar. Next best is to stub the things that bar is actually calling that uh -huh. are its external dependencies. Uh -huh. And even further uh, down the hopefully less smelly train is inject dependencies, like pass in the, the real dependencies yeah. for the object or somehow isolate those dependencies. Yeah, for way. sure. Okay. So stubs are for passing in, basically. Not for overriding existing methods? Is that a reasonable rule of thumb? Yeah, I mean, if you're stubbing your object under test, then you've got serious problems. Things are probably wrong. You're yeah. not actually testing the object you, anymore. Yeah, for sure. Um, gotcha. Okay, so you heard it from here. Yeah. Watch out for that. Uh-huh. Uh, awesome. Well, I think we should wrap it up there. It's sure. It's been a nice little chat, though. Yeah. It's good to have you uh, in person in Boston. Thank you. Do you want to plug anything or point people to things that you've done? Sure. So I'm actually currently working on a video series called uh, Effective Ruby Live Lessons with Pearson. And that's going to be a series of uh, sort of short screencast tutorials on like little Ruby tips that you can use to improve your everyday Ruby workflows. Um, that's actually still in pre-production. I'm filming it in two weeks. Um, 
and so i can't give you like a pre-order link or code or anything yet but yep. um if you follow me on twitter uh i will be tweeting about that when the pre-order goes live awesome sounds good Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 145. Thanks for listening.